Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Our guest today is Jared Janes of Jared Janes Consulting. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on. This is, uh, uh, is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun for us both to be on here together. According to your website, it says you spend your time learning, meditating, podcasting, and consulting. And, of course, last but not least, you are also the producer of The Jim Rutt Show. Yeah, yeah. It'll be fun to kind of turn the thing around. You've you know, edited most of the episodes. Yeah. <laughs> now you can be one. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a weird edit uh, later on. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, though. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure I could tolerate editing my own voice. I guess I did do it once. I did edit one episode of the show just to see how it was done. Uh, and I decided never again, not if I can avoid it. <laughs> But I asked you onto the show, not for, you know, your relationship to the show, but because we had an interesting discussion on Twitter, as people who listen to the show know, and particularly people who listen to me on other people's podcasts, I'm known to go off on a rant whenever the S word is used, spirituality. <laughs> uh, anyway, we got into it on that topic once on Twitter and so back and forth. And I thought we start, at least started to approach some sort of almost agreement. Mm -hmm. I thought it might be worth, to, you know, to some re re degree, redoing that discussion and then expanding it and see where it leads. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, it was a good discussion. It really was. It was lively. And since then, you know, based on your suggestion and others, I've been probing more into the area. You suggested I read Sam Harris's Waking Up, which I did. And uh, somebody else, it might well have been Jason Snyder, suggested The Science of Enlightenment by Sinjin Young, which I'm about halfway through. So, yeah, let's get down to it. Let's do it. Let me start why I cringe and or worse or start <laughs> fuming when I hear the word spirituality. The problem to me is the essence of what that word is often used for. In fact, the more I've read and the more I've listened, the more I've talked to people like yourself and others, you know, I can come up to a version of which that word points to, which isn't too offensive. In fact, it's actually good. But why in the world do we have to include the word spirit in it? <laughs> to my mind, you know, it appeals to Cartesian dualism, mm. i.e. the idea that mind and body are two completely separate kinds of material and are not related in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, it uh, brings up to my mind, at least, you know, ghosts and spooks and, <laughs> you know, angels and demons and all various kinds of spirits. And that may just be uh, an overreaction to my uh, youthful Catholicism, which I defiantly rejected when I was 11. Mm. But that's what that word brings up for me. Yeah. I mean, Actually, you know, I, I can sympathize a lot because I've been in the exact same place. Uh, so, so I grew up um, in a kind of like hardline secular uh, upbringing. So it wasn't even around the church. And yeah, the, the religion or spirituality were 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 no goes for me for my first twenty six years or something like that. And even when I started to meditate, it was you know secular mindfulness was the attractor point. You know, I wanted to become the most optimal body mind as, as, as possible. And so it was very much a self-improvement project, but then kind of waded my way into some of the deeper waters and 
now for for whatever reason to describe the character of some of the subjective experiences that I've found along the contemplative, spiritual, mystical path, whatever it is, you know, they, they really lend themselves to religious language that if taken from an objective standpoint uh, is obviously absurd. But yeah, I think the, the one thing to keep in mind is when it's being used correctly and not uh, being applied to areas that it shouldn't be, um, it's primarily a subjective uh, exploration. And there is unfortunately this kind of intangible non-material internal kind of spirit to the practice that uh for for whatever reason that that word is just so available and and far more descriptive rather than using uh more scientific language like saying that uh you know your your default mode network or prefrontal cortex are dampened and uh you know we we could talk about these from a a third person perspective but it, it doesn't do a ton of value when we're actually talking about the practice so yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's there's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, that you hit probably right about on where the interesting uh, seam is, which is the difference between the first person or subjective experience and the analytical or objective third person experience. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an interesting question how we integrate on one side or tease apart those two perspectives. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, to what degree are they two aspects of the same thing or are they two fundamentally different things? Yeah, well, and this is kind of the, the interesting thing, like you said in the beginning, that even the declaration of some sort of spirit to be in touch with does kind of immediately bring up this connotation of a dualistic perspective, saying that there's this other thing, other part of our experience that we should prioritize. And the strange thing is that early on in the practice, it really does feel like that. There is, you know, it's trying to become acquainted with this certain subtle, nuanced, subjective experiences that feel completely separate from our everyday material reality when we're at work, when we're, you know, in a job interview, when we're uh, going grocery shopping or something like that. But I think, you know, while that early practice can have a lot of benefits, there can be some major milestones and shifts in, in perspective that start to unify those two perspectives. And, and this is what I would kind of, uh, in a blanket phrase, point to as as the, the juice of the practice, which is a, a more non-dual experience uh, where subject-object distinctions and Cartesian dualism applied in many different uh, aspects of our life uh, starts to break down. So, so it's kind of a yes and no in the sense that dualism is is kind of something that's there in the beginning, but if we go deep enough, it's it quickly dissolves and and that brings some very interesting imp- impacts to our our moment to moment experience as well. Maybe for the audience's sake, maybe you could describe if you can remember what some of those subtle kind of spiritual dualistic experiences might have been early on in your practice. Well, and maybe we could we could also state uh, as as kind of a bit of a distinction point here. I think that it's really common when we talk about contemplative or spiritual practices or and specifically spiritual or contemplative states uh, to emphasize the uh, extremely extraordinary, almost magical elements of those states or those those moments. And this these same things come up with uh, uh, you know exploration in the psychedelic realm as well and can be induced in things like sport is you know it's 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 available in pretty much any aspects of our lives. Um, but we f- tend to find it more in religious uh, and high concentrated states. But I guess I think it's important to separate two things here. there's there are the states, and those are 
interesting and powerful and often can be big motivations to continue down the path. But what I see is the the real kind of rubber hits the road is more of a trait conversion. And this is very subtle in the sense that it's just, you know, now when I'm in that job interview, I, you know, it feels like a sacred space or something, you know, for the lack of, or, or enchanted or, you know, some one of these words that is problematic on a mil- many different levels. And so, yeah, and, and really, while in the beginning, the states can be very motivating and, and fascinating, in the long run, uh, it's these character shifts that are kind of lasting and durable uh, and very profound uh, in shifts shifts in how we see things. Um, do you want me to go into like, I mean, I could talk about some of the the, the heightened states I've had that are were, were interesting, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. And then I'll, I'll, I'll share some of my own. Cool, cool. Um, so I did quite a few different practices and depending on the type of practices you're doing, the type of, of experiences can be drastically different. One of the first ones that comes to mind was actually an experience of pain. So speaking of Shinzen Young, as, as you mentioned, he has this really great equation that I think is really foundational to understanding what is happening to the psyche as we go on this contemplative journey. And that is defining suffering as pain times resistance. So it's a multiplicative equals the suffering component. And the problem here is that by default in everyday life, we can't really make a distinction between the resistance to the pain and the pain itself. And you can have these experiences in meditation from time to time where the resistance component of the suffering drops out pretty drastically or, or uh, in a very clear and concisive way. And so one time I was on a uh, weekend solo retreat and meditating, you know, eight or nine hours a day. And as you can imagine, I was having some pretty extreme back pain. And, uh, you know, I'd been sitting for like an hour or so. And I knew I could tell it was about an hour or so. I, and all of a sudden, you know, this, the, the back pain was just screaming, like it was excruciating. I was like, I, I gotta, maybe I'm just going to call it. I can't make it the full hour, hour and a half, uh, whatever it was. And uh, for whatever reason, I just decided, well, screw it. I'm just going to sit through it. And so I resigned to the fact that there was going to be pain. And the moment that happened, you know, my back pain went from basically like a, you know, a nine or a 10 on the, the scale of discomfort to about a two. So all of a sudden it felt like a very subtle constriction in the middle of my back because the, that real, that uh, resistance component wasn't in there. And so, yeah, I th- I, and I think that's important because the more familiar you become with mental resistance to discomfort or even mental attraction to comfort, the, the, the inverse, the more you can kind of start seeing on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis, how much of your own suffering is self-created. And that was the first impactful uh, thing that comes to mind. I've, I've had you know, a number of other interesting things, but maybe they're, they're not quite as applicable to, to day-to-day existence. Yeah, let's actually branch a little bit here because I have it down further on my list of topics, but it comes up whenever one visits uh, what I would call Buddhist-inspired approaches, and that's this focused on suffering and actually using the word suffering in a somewhat peculiar way. Yeah. You know, you come away reading this stuff, I mean, Sam Harris in particular, seems to think that all of life is suffering. I go, what the fuck, right? (laughs) We may have our aches and pains and problems and this and that, but is it reasonable to think that all of life is suffering? (laughs) Well, I think the first thing to do when we we look at the suffering question is definitely to look at the translation. Um, And so, you know, while life is suffering is a very provocative statement, I think it's actually would be actually more skillfully translated as life is pervaded with unsatisfactoriness. And the real rub is that this subtle unsatisfactoriness, which 
every human experiences from a certain degree in the sense that we pursue goals and the, the hopes of being able to achieve them and possibly get to the, a place where circumstances are right and we've kind of arrived. Uh, and sometimes we can tell ourselves these stories about, oh, it's all about the journey. And, and conceptually, knowing that that's not entirely true is helpful. Um, but there's a different way of, of, of seeing that, that sometimes we're still operating under these assumptions uh, that if we could only get, or if we could only avoid, or we could <laughs> only be content, you know, these, these, if, if the circumstances came in the right place, suddenly I would be happy. There would be nowhere, nowhere to go. I'd just be in that moment. And so I think that's a far better description. And the interesting thing too, is that this unsatisfactoriness is very pervasive and it's very subtle. It's very, you know, like it, it doesn't, it's not really pronounced. And if it's always been there, it's not really going to draw much of our attention. Um, one of the things that I can think of actually as a slight uh, digression is the simple fact that when I was growing up, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when I was uh, born. Uh, this is a genetic condition. And one of the, the results of this is that you have a lot of GI problems growing up. Um, so you know, it just was a standard thing that uh, every day or, or, you know, a couple every other day or something like that, I was going to have some sort of issue with my stomach. And some days were worse and some days were better. And when I was in my early 20s, uh, I went on a diet that, uh, for whatever reason, allowed my, my stomach to kind of reboot. Um, and all of a sudden, I felt what it was like to not have any stomach discomfort at all, a zero. Um, and in that moment, I realized, oh, my God, my whole life, I've been at a stomach discomfort level of five at a minimum, and I never knew that there was a zero. <laughs> and this is very similar to the kind of psychological effect of chronic low-grade unsatisfaction with what is happening in the moment. And uh, the more we unravel this and understand the mechanisms that, that lead to this unsatisfactoriness, the more rich kind of life gets because there's, there's nowhere to go and it, you're kind of just basking in the, in the moment, I suppose. <laughs> That doesn't sound too good. Sounds like a bunch of fucking hippies in mud huts. <laughs> Isn't unsatisfactoriness what keeps us getting up in the morning and punching the world, and making progress, and <laughs> and all that sort of stuff? I mean, I got. I don't want to be un un. What is it? Unsatisfactorynessed. <laughs> I want to be unsatisfied with the way things are. I mean, as you know, I'm fairly involved in something called Game B, which people can find out more about at the Game B group on Facebook or GameB.wiki, and you know, thinking about it, you know, here I am, uh, you know, retirement age, uh, you know, very in theory, uh, well settled economically, et cetera. And yet I have a strong unsatisfactoriness about the world yeah. that there's something fucked about our world mm -hmm. that I don't like. I don't want to leave it to my descendants. You know, I would like to help make the world better. Uh, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing really. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I have to say, I agree with you. I'm, I'm going to come from the same place, but I think we could probably reuse this suffering equation from Shenzhen to talk about the way there can still be pain. There can still be discomfort. So the discomfort is a wanting to make things better uh, or address some sort of challenges or help somebody. You know, we, have, we have a lot of biological drives that are there for the right reason. Um, and it's simply the way that we react to these these drives. Um, and it's, it's not just the negative ones. It's actually the positive ones too, in the sense that we're adding this whole layer of wanting uh, something to either go away uh, when it's not, or wanting something to stay, we know it's going to go away because there's nothing that's kind of permanent in our experience. Uh, and both of these things create this unsatisfactory quality 
that pervades all of our our moment to moment. So it's kind of like a, a meta unsatisfactoriness that we're trying to exclude. Uh, but regardless, negative and positive valence continue to operate on the human uh, physio psycho uh, uh, experience. Yeah, uh, so it's the the drive is still there. You're just um, not so, you know, it's, it's like being on a roller coaster and throwing your hands up and enjoying the hell out of it versus, you know, gripping onto that, that handlebar and uh, like you have some sort of control about where it's going to go uh, or, or not wanting it to turn that way or not liking the turn, the angle on this and, and resisting the, the ride that you are on regardless. So yeah, I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> Uh, a little bit, though I can't say I've ever felt like I was resisting the ride I was on. In fact, my business philosophy, I people say, what is your business philosophy? Fuck, I never paid any attention to having a business philosophy. But after I retired, I decided that in retrospect, my business philosophy could be summarized in the uh, Hunter S. Thompson sentence, faster and faster until the thrill of speed exceeds the fear of death. <laughs> so I was always a letter fly motherfucker kind of person, yeah, right? Yeah. And just go for it, right? Don't worry too much, right? Shit hits the wall and explodes, which it did once. Oh, well, right? Yeah. We just, you know, get up, pick ourselves off, dust ourselves off and go do it again. So I'm not sure I've ever felt this, you know, <laughs> white knuckled. Oh my God. Oh my God. Life sucks. Life sucks. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, the, and the white knuckled metaphor is, is a very provocative one because it illustrates and, and kind of caricaturizes this resistance. Um, but obviously it's on a spectrum here, right? And, and everybody's psychology is probably leading to more or less of this dissatisfaction uh, in their moment-to-moment experience. And the weird thing is that even if it is a small portion of our experience, so, um, and you know, this is this kind of speaks to the, the subtleness of uh, a lot of the components here in the, the, the contemplative uh, unraveling. They, you know, it's a good metaphor that I like is kind of like um, if we were to look at ourselves uh, or our experience as being comprised of, 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 of um, a puddle of water, I suppose. So all of our experience, the totality of our experience is summarized in a puddle of water. And there is a big difference between there being a drop of red dye that colors the entire experience and all of a sudden it has this this lens or you're kind of living in this very subtle, uh, this redness quality. And then what it looks like when you go from just 0.01% 0.01% of dissatisfaction to zero uh, dissatisfaction. The counterintuitive thing here is that it feels significantly different. All of a sudden, you can see from one edge of the puddle to the other instead of three feet in front of your face. Uh, and you know everything's vast, everything's open, everything is very light. And yeah, I, I mean, I, it's hard to explain, but this is part of understanding the component of resistance to our experience is having these subtle experiences that when you say them don't really sound that interesting. (laughs) And that's why maybe sometimes this religious language is a way of communicating the profundity of the experiences because it sounds a lot more interesting to dwell in the kingdom of heaven uh, than it does to, uh, you know, slightly dampen your default mode network so that there's uh, less of a filtering experience from the the larger aspect of your brain or something, (laughs) right? Yeah, though maybe I'm sure it's just me. Though there are other probably people like me that now when you talk to me about the kingdom of God and all this stuff, all my uh, uh, natural knee jerks just go bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> right? You know, we've had uh, you know a world plagued by these religions. You know, as far back as anybody could find, it seems like we we seem to have a weakness for 
for it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even Sam Harris says, yeah, you walk into the aisles of any spiritual bookstore and you're confronted with the yearnings and credulity of our species by the yard. You've been into the spiritual section of a bookstore. You go, holy shit, right? You know, sleeping under pyramids, astrology, <laughs> you know, uh, regressing to past lives. You know, oh my, probably these, this day and age, probably some flat earth stuff in there. The humans seem to have a weakness for these complicated and ungrounded stories. Yeah. And, you know, I, and as I've learned more in particular, I have really spent some time trying to learn about this stuff. I can definitely see where the benefit comes from. I mean, there's a large body of work about just the plain old yeah. physiological benefits of equanimity that comes through things like meditation or other kinds of contemplative practices. And I'm at least willing to provisionally buy uh, this idea of curing something like unsatisfactory without making you lay in bed all day, yeah, which would yeah. kind of suck. <laughs> but I still resist being taken anywhere near the kingdom of heaven or any goddamn altars or chalices or incense burning or any of that horse shit, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I mean, you know, Sam's book, Sam Harris's book, you know, he's kind of a bummer of a dude, I'm afraid. I mean, he <laughs> does not seem like a very happy guy, right? Which seems odd for a person who, who talks about the endless hours, including like a year one time doing nothing but meditate. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Jesus, if I was as miserable as that motherfucker, right? <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, nonetheless, you know, he's an atheist, too, and it uh, and yet he's able to sort of buy into this, but didn't doesn't seem to have made him happy. He doesn't seem like he'd be a happy dude at all. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Well, there's the interesting thing is that when we say happy, even happiness. Right. So so one of the I think there's a million ways that we could dissect it. Um, But one of my favorite definitions of what happiness is doesn't really have anything to do with like joyful, elated states, but it's actually just being okay with everything the way it is in this moment, right? And sometimes that might be, mean being okay with being annoyed or, you know, uh, uh, wanting to, to, to uh, tell the Muslim world what they need to be doing. You know, whatever it is, right? You know, Sam Harris's variant or, or anybody else, the psychology of, of a human still seems to, to unfold itself. Um, and, and maybe even to make a connection, the last episode was with Hansi Franjak. And I think one of the the really important things to think of here is that there are multiple levels of human development um, and they interact with each other in interesting ways in the sense that if your rational understanding of your place in the world and kind of how the thing, how the world works is very undeveloped, um, maybe very uh, solipsistic or, you know, very in-group oriented where you only can have compassion for the people that are uh, you know, the same religion or come from the same piece of land as you or something like that, you can still have some of these really profound spiritual experiences. And unfortunately, the way you experience it will be through the lens of how developed you are uh, in the the kind of, you know, for the, I, I really like the, the phrase, the growing up component of your, your personal development. Uh, and the spiritual stuff is more uh, related to to a waking up aspect of our experience, um, but they're they're intimately connected, and and unfortunately, a lot of our traditions that that explore these waking up elements of our experience were created in a you know pre modern uh, age, and so they used magical, crazy <laughs> ideas of how the world works, and they use those those elements to uh, to describe what the what the path is like, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I think maybe it's just a happy accident that uh, that they're they're being 
able to unboundedly, creatively choose the most provocative things that they wanted to that were not housed by logic and reason uh, and science, uh, it, it still somewhat is, is uh, uh, there's, there's still value in the sense that it could be easier to point out uh, parts of our experience that are profound using some of the religious language still. If I'm using it, it's always... Uh, from a very critical lens. In the one way, it's complete bullshit, and in another way, it's the most, it's, it's far more true of, of what my experience is actually uh, like at this moment. Yeah, I love that. I love that line. I still don't fully understand it, but I would, you know, like to over, you know, the next year or so learn more about just what that line is, because you're not the only smart person that has said things like that, Mm, right? mm -hmm. And, you know, unlike Sam, you don't seem to be a miserable fuck either, right? (laughs) You seem like you enjoy life, (laughs) uh, which is good. And, you know, while I play a, you know, hard-headed scientific realist on TV, or at least on my podcast and other people's podcasts, truth is I've actually had lots of these experiences. Mm-hmm. And I did LSD a half dozen times when I was a young adult. I've done other non-mainstream but powerful psychedelics probably a hundred times. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had very deep what I call mystical experiences typically involved in the outdoors and certain kinds of lighting and times of day, yeah. et cetera. You know, and I can, uh, I, I think I even did it on one of our podcasts was maybe it's the one I did with Hansi or, where I can f- flip myself into a state of non-self mm-hmm. that it's essentially just perception and processing without a self there, but it can only do it for about two seconds. Yeah, yeah. And so I do all these things and they're and kind of cool. And for a while I was doing some things with biurnal sounds and guided meditation and stuff. It was all interesting and it's kind of enjoyable, but I guess <laughs> I, I don't see anything profound. It may, have I not gone far enough or am I just a naturally shallow person? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, <laughs> Could be either, right? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all shallow in our own ways, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, one thing that I think that you and I both have in common, uh, as you said, I seem like a pretty happy person. You know, a lot of people that start this this spiritual project um, are there because life's tough and they're not happy, uh, and they want to address this this very you know obviously pronounced uh, you know higher than 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 normal or higher than average amount of unsatisfactoriness in their experience. Then there's other people, myself I'd include, where you know I actually I was I was extremely happy. I was always happy. You know, I I grew up as being uh, you know in my family known as the kind of uh, always equanimous, always smiling, making the best of every situation person. And, you know, I never really felt any kind of lack of meaning or purpose in my life. And uh, yeah, I, I was very self-assured, you know, psychologically, you know, other than maybe some some uh, ego aggrandizement, uh, I didn't really have many pathologies to solve with this. And I actually went in there into this project with the, the idea of making my the best self I could possibly uh, create. And it can, it definitely, as you said, the practices do help us from a just kind of, you know, day-to-day operating uh, perspective. You know, how we choose to use our attention is is a really important skill. Uh, it's not only developed in meditation. Uh, people live certain lives of, as you said, being in in nature. Uh, you know, kind of away from some of the abstract concepts and things that of everyday life, uh, and able to kind of just connect to the moment and and uh, you know, ha- be feel like you're you're part of nature. Uh, that that dissolves some of that that boundary. Um, get, doing deep, concentrative things like you know, just reading a lot and being able to hold your, uh, sustain your attention, uh, make make connections can be a good way of practicing 
uh, you know, mindful uh, techniques. And 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 a lot of these can also be applied toward the the psychological, uh, you know, trauma and stuff like that as well. I don't really have much experience with that, um, but there's a number of ways that it enhances our experience in a, in a very uh, real way. Uh, one, of, I guess, the best the best way that I can think of, I think you've mentioned before. The stories we tell about our experiences largely uh, confabulated by the mind. You know, there's a lot of psychological experiments that put people in situations where uh, they're they're being subtly or subconsciously uh, motivated to do something, and then they ask the person why, and they've come up with some story that's somewhat self self coherent, but uh, not ultimately true uh, in in any any real way because they don't have access to, or not access to, but, but visibility of all of the machinery that's leading to decisions and things like that. And one of the things that comes up as you continue to go down this path is understanding the uh, intentions that are arising in your moment-to-moment experience that lead to you doing something. And the, the very fascinating thing that we start to realize is that because we're a ego and the trapped behind the the, the head uh, in most of our waking life, like you said, that we have these moments where that, that kind of gets stripped away and it's just process happening and unfolding in an uh, unbounded way. But when we're constricted into this agent who's separate from his environment trying, trying to get what he or she wants, it can be frustrating and all of our decisions are self-oriented. Uh, like, you know, it's like, what do I need to be happy in this situation? And the more you start to realize how prevalent this is in our moment-to-moment experience, and this is deeply connected to that unsatisfactoriness. What can I get from my environment that I don't have? Um, the more you realize that it's, it's you're working less in harmony with others, uh, and so this is maybe something that I've said that was kind of provocative on the, the Game B topic on Twitter, where I said, you know, without sufficiently uh, deconstructing the ego, collectivist uh, action is going to be really hard to solve because everybody's acting selfishly, and the the rub is. We don't know that we're acting selfishly. So we have to kind of put ourselves in those spaces where self-other distinctions start to dissolve uh, in order to be acting from a, a place of uh, you know, working toward a, a common group goal. And, and maybe that would be one example of very tactical uh, stuff and that's connected directly to some of the Game B discussion that we have in as well uh, these days. Yeah, and as you know, in my recent essay, A Journey to Game B, I laid out a couple of good-sized sections on psychotechnologies for exactly that reason. You know, I would say I'm less sure of exactly what and exactly how, mm-hmm. but it does seem to me that contemplative practices, psychedelics, neurofeedback, who knows what all, neurostimulation even, who knows, may allow us to operate better together as coherent groups and cohesive groups yeah. than we do in our current kind of uh, toxic society. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me go back on a couple other things that you talked about in passing. One is indeed my uh, favorite topic of the confabulator. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a really, to my mind, hugely important topic and maybe more central to our actual human way of being than we'd like to know. <laughs> the earliest good work on the confabulator comes from the split brain experiments of Michael Gazaniga and, some, and another and his mentor, I forget his name right off the top of my head, where the corpus callosum, the big giant fiber that connects the right and left 
hemisphere of the brain were severed and then images were presented that only one half of the brain could see, typically the right brain, which does not usually have much language capability. And people would make up these unbelievable stories to explain what they had seen <laughs> and, and make up stories that somehow the thing that they had seen but didn't see, you know, uh, get, gets embedded into a story, etc. Yeah. And Gazaniga and his people he worked with called this confabulation. A recent book I read goes further and in an amazing way. And, you know, I'm going to read this book again, and then I'm going to have the author on the podcast. And the book's called The Mind is Flat, and the author is Nick Chater, C-H-A-T-E-R. He takes the really radical perspective that we are nothing but uh, a series of memories which can be searched in in parallel, and then a confabulator which tries to make the best sense out of them that it can in a story that it tells to ourself. Yeah, yeah. I think it is a... a, a largely true description of what is happening in, in human cognition. And you know, so this is where maybe that, that spirit word comes in. The, the interesting thing is that our experience is also pervaded uh, by non-conceptual stuff. You know, so we have our feelings and emotions and the, the feel, you know, understanding what it means to be a body that has all these different sensory organs that are constantly taking a bunch of information from our, uh, our experience as well. Um, and yes, that's being incorporated directly with the, the, the mind uh, process. What's interesting is that so many of the practices that we're doing uh, is actually aimed at looking in between the thoughts and the stories or deconstructing the thoughts and the stories and seeing how they're kind of, you know, what where they're coming from uh, and seeing that they're confabulations. And when we see it in a real deep way, uh, all of a sudden, we kind of take ourselves a little less seriously. You know, like these ideas, like, well, I mean, they could be kind of true. And and yeah, you know, we do have other tools to be able to help out, like the scientific method where we can actually put them to the test uh, to help, help orient uh, closer to what is actually happening. But the interesting thing is that I think a lot of what's happening and another reason that action becomes a little bit more skillful, or I mean, not a little bit, a lot, a lot more skillful, uh, is that we get such so tunnel visioned on the uh, the loud conceptual elements, the thoughts, the ideas, the images uh, of our experience, and don't see what's kind of in between, which is the feelings. Um, and there is, and there's also an element uh, of our experience that that pervades every like as prior to it feels. You know, I'm not making any kind of objective claims here, um, but there is a a feeling of of a more raw, just simple knowingness that you can start to f- tap into. Uh, and you realize that that knowingness is not just attached to the, the loud sensory experiences. Um, it's also attached to, you know, more subtle things in between, the, the, the space in between, the silence in between. I think you've talked about like hearing the, the songless uh, a song or, or whatever it is. Yeah, the song with no words. I mean, when I get into very, very deep, you know, with the heaviest psychedelics or the deepest trances or, you know, a shitload of nitrous oxide, I always get to this point where the same song is playing and it has words, but it doesn't have words. It's just the weirdest fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the weird thing, right? We have this, you know, these very subtle elements of our experience that just are never present uh, in our, our moment-to-moment experience. And I think this is what a lot of those those major trait shifts, like the, the you know, they talk about kind of hitting certain milestones where all of a sudden your perspective is completely shifted. It can be not through effort, but just implicitly running 
in the background where you're kind of have a broader awareness of the context of the, your thoughts and feelings and everything like that. It kind of expands the available information uh, to cohesively make decisions. Um, and you know, I think this is actually this is what it feels like, at least. Uh, and, and it points to a lot of the, the discussions about meaningfulness, how to navigate toward the meaningful elements of our experience. It requires us to be available to all of our senses and everything that's going on. And if we get constricted into you know, one small chain, maybe a, an idea or a thought of, or a string of, of, of uh, words and, and images uh, strewn together, if while that is going on, we can also be in touch with our emotional experience and the, maybe the emotional experience of others around us because we're, we're social humans. We, we, if, if we're aware of it, we sense into other people's uh, reactions as well. All of a sudden, there's this like larger coherence that can arise uh, instead of being localized into just one tiny element of our experience. And that constriction comes from having agendas about things being different than what they should be <laughs> like even if it's already there so like one of the the great and simple definitions of this big word enlightenment uh that i like is simply the complete cooperation with the inevitable what has happened has happened and you're only looking forward uh as opposed to being stuck on <laughs> the things that you wish were different uh and so yeah that but I don't know, for whatever that's worth, that's pulling a, a number of threads together and seeing if they uh, they work for you. <laughs> you know, the last part, I like a lot. I mean, people who've worked with me and known with me, that is very, very similar to the advice. I the, My cheap five cents worth of psychological advice is fuck the past. That's why they call it the past, right? <laughs> that's basically the Ruddian psychotherapy, which I can give to anybody for a nickel, right? You know, why the hell do we get so wrapped up in the past? Can't do anything about it. You know, all kinds of fucked up things have happened to all of us, right? Mm -hmm. And not a goddamn thing we can do about it. You know, let's focus on moving forward. But I want to hit a couple other things first. Let's retouch on that. But, you know, just some science touch points. One that speaks to the sense that, you know, our actions are more ineffable than we likely know. The work of Benjamin Leibitt, the famous Leibitt experiments, uh, which show reasonably convincingly, and as far as I know, they've not been refuted. Anybody knows uh, a refutation of Libet, let me know. But it appears we make a decision like to move our hand to pick up a glass of water before we're consciously aware of it. <laughs> so that our consciousness is essentially the movie of rather than the mechanism by which mm -hmm. the uh, the decisions are actually made. And the other one, and this is a book I've recommended, I don't know how many times, I'm going to do it again. It's by Antonio Damasio, and it's called The Feeling of What Happens, Body and Emotion in the Making of Consciousness. And he's a clinical psychologist, and he goes into some of his cases of people who have certain kinds of prefrontal cortex injuries where the emotional signal doesn't get to the decision making at all. Mm -hmm. And they literally would starve to death because they couldn't decide what to have for breakfast. Yeah. At the end of the day, most of our decisions are not actually analytically derived by <laughs> some uh, uh, you know, Aristotelian logic or some such. Yeah. We got them sort of roughly framed up and then emotion tips the hand for us, yeah. right? Yeah. That's what's really going on. Uh, and I think both Leibet and Damasio are, are very strong support for that perspective. Let me also uh, jump back to something that you talked about that caused my ears to really prick up. And if, if true, this would be cool and maybe a good way to rebrand all this stuff. Could one say that becoming an expert at meditative contemplative practice is basically learning how to hack the confabulator? Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, I mean, this is the weird thing, right? Like to, to understand the machine, if you understand how it's being made, it gives you some influence on when it's being constructed in the future, uh, just because there's an awareness of it. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the difference between being a, uh, a UI designer who's, who's putting together the different elements for a website, but then there's also this underlying source code uh, that is actually the thing that's creating the images and the interaction that you're having with the screen. And so a lot of, yeah, that confabulator is is kind of the process of understanding the source code of our mind, the, the fundamental components. The better you understand the system, the easier it is for it to, to work in, in harmony, I suppose. I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing here, as you say. It's like you're not driving, <laughs> but your action is dependent on how much information, how much bandwidth you're getting in your moment-to-moment experience. Uh, and if that can include the source code, uh, it, it can be really powerful. Uh, that, that's interesting thought, but I'm going to have a slightly different thought. I'm just I'm sort of thinking out loud here, so this might end up being gibberish, but I'm trying to actually formulate here on the fly a way that if getting good at contemplative practice allows one to hack the confabulator, how one could actually use that to steer the ship. And that is, if we assume that Libet is essentially right and Damasio are essentially right, that a whole series of unconscious mechanisms end up making the final decision. But nonetheless, those unconscious processes have to be working on something. And what they're working on is our memories plus our conscious contents. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, our conscious contents also include, and maybe only for humans, something called internal talk. You know, we're talking to ourselves internally fairly often. In fact, all the time. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not all the time. Maybe not when we're actively engaged in a hardcore activity, the action mode network. But when, when we're in the default mode network, we're certainly talking to ourselves a lot. And so what happens if rather than just letting the unconscious throw up what the fuck it wants, this level of awareness that's hacking the confabulator intentionally while watching the moving parts of the confabulator from inside decides what new internal talk tokens, i.e. words, to shove into conscious content. Mm. And then you're not exactly sure what the confabulator will do with it, but you do know when you change the content, it changes the output of the confabulator. And if you were to test this, you could become perhaps fairly good at out-hacking the confabulator by instead of allowing sort of unknown words to pop up from the unconsciousness, let this intermediate level of awareness pop words into the conscious frame. <laughs> is that insane or, or is that neat, reasonable? It, it's reasonable. But again, the, the counter, the paradoxical element here is that something similar to that process does happen. The, the wider you open your uh, moment-to-moment experience and less hyper-focused and tunnel-visioned we get on certain elements of it, it allows for these disparate connections and awareness of the thoughts. You know, most of the time, we're not aware of the vast majority of the thoughts that come up. They kind of just go under the radar and we're very subtly aware of them or something like that. Um, you know, my early, a lot of my early meditation was like just watching thoughts and you know that they're weird they just spontaneously pop out of nothing and you know and if you get focused on one of them all of a sudden they start building on each other uh but you know a lot of times they just come out of nowhere uh and you you, you're just watching them uh pop up but anyways um so if if you're opening the the playing field for all of the potential thoughts to to arise uh it gives you a far better uh measure of, of of what to do but you know here's the interesting thing especially when we're talking about thought 
the thoughts are a uh, conceptuality, uh, mind conceptuality, images and words. Um, uh, they are, uh, and sounds as we're, we're covering, mentally generated content. They're a, a very important part of how we're navigating the world. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the more you become aware of your embodied experience, uh, you know, a lot of people would say emotional or intuitive, you start to realize that the body is far more informed to actually make decisions. Even though the mental content is kind of triggering those emotional reactions of go toward it or go away from it. And here's the other interesting thing. I think this is why it's still important because you know, if we're saying that we're not in control of any of our thoughts, then why the hell do we read in philosophy or doing science, right? Uh, we don't have control over any of it. But the thing is, is that the more conceptuality we feed ourselves, it actually permeates our psychology and burrows its way deep in. Um, so the the intuitions are kind of a combination of all of the things, all of your prior experience uh, that it, you know is, but it's subtle because it's non-conceptual because you know the our, our embodied uh, movement is probably evolutionarily far older than the the mind-oriented uh, version of it, and so you, you kind of have to have these two modes working together to optimally <laughs> move through your your experience, and it creates this place where you know this is where sometimes the, the word you know that has a lot of baggage with it is is weird. It, it requires sometimes that that there's a faith in your intuition, and you have no idea why. And you know that any story that comes up, any confabulation of why it is that you're doing what you're doing, is not really true. Uh, even though there is, we can't always say that. You know, there are there are truths in all of our experience, but. Our mental content is far less true than we assume. Um, and when we're in this subject-object uh, dualistic default human uh, mode, we give most of our attention to the thoughts uh, and the memories uh, and, and less to the actual embodied sensorial experience of what's happening in that moment. Um, and if we want to tune into the, the flow of things, uh, you know, this is why we call it flow when you're in, the, uh, when you're in playing the sports or something like that or having a great conversation. It's an embodied thing. It's felt. It's not a, not a thought, not thought process. Well, I would argue that the that thoughts might be part of that, right? Definitely part of it. Yeah. Like for you know, for instance, you know, I've written about how one of the ways I solve hard problems is to go for a walk and get my head in a state where it's having a conversation with itself about the problem. Yeah. I do this particularly for a really difficult programming problem. I still write software from mm -hmm. time to time. And being not an everyday professional, I ain't as good at it as I used to be. But if I can run into a dead end and I can go walk for 20 minutes and let my brain have a conversation with itself only about the problem and about nothing else, mm -hmm. it's astounding how far I can, uh, like I'm almost like a spectator at this show. It's really quite amazing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a, r a routine way I, uh, I solve problems. And the body is probably in the loop of helping choose what the next word from the unconsciousness is in this dialogue. And to your point, why study or why work, why read books? The other thing that's key is our memories are the raw material from which the unconscious is hauling stuff up. Mm -hmm. uh, so the more relevant stuff you have in your memory and the more it's linked correctly, i.e. you actually have proper knowledge structures in your brain rather than just the garbage that so many people have. They have a whole bunch of disconnected words, but they're not structured in a, in a rich fashion. Yeah. Then the intuitions 
and your memory and the structures of your memory work together to produce this dance of internal conversation, which was some kind of magic prefrontal light self-like touch stays converged on the problem rather than wandering <laughs> off by what I'm going to have for lunch or something. And it's just amazing to watch this dialogue take place and fairly rapidly solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say the, the, the core mechanism is that, you know, as long as there's a strong intention to stay with something, uh, we'll stay with it. <laughs> and the more you practice at staying with something, the, the easier it is to, to do so. Yeah, I agree. Conceptuality is huge. It's a big part of it, you know, like, and, and even if you get into the, the, the deep waters of the contemplative space, you, you spend a lot of time reading and understanding the philosophy behind this stuff. You know, then it just comes down to, to putting it into practice. So, so in your sense, what I would say is that the thought is kind of allowing us to explore a certain territory or problem or whatever it is. Uh, but the body uh, is actually the judge. So it's saying like, yeah, that that makes sense or no, that doesn't. Uh, and, you know, this this also gets kind of echoed if we look at the field of persuasion. Uh, you know, like what what's the best way to convince of somebody of something? It's not to convince them through a logical argument. It's to arise a certain emotional reaction from them of agreement. There's there's tricks you can do to the, the, the other end too, where you want them to get them against something so that then they're willing to fight it or something like that. Uh, you know, we might be saying a lot about uh, some of our, our geopolitics right now. Uh, but yeah, the, the emotion, the body, the feelings um, are kind of the, they're the, the, the vehicle. Um, and while they might be uh, driving uh, based on what the mind is serving, you know, and what the mind is, you know, and, and the other big thing here is, as you say, the body's intuitions is informed by previous uh, mind content. So they are intimately connected. But yeah, I would say when I'm going on a hard problem and thinking about it left and right, I then realize that once it's actually time to make a decision and, and put it in action, uh, I need to stop thinking about it and just feel into the experience. Uh, you know, this, this, is, this interview would be a perfect example. I thought about a lot of ways that this could go, uh, but I consciously, you know, as soon as I went in here, set the intention of having no agenda of where it heads and, uh, and, leaving myself kind of open to, to the winds. And, and, and you obviously are bringing a bunch of structure to this too. So I can kind of draft off of your, your conceptual winds, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a windy motherfucker. No doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're probably at a fairly similar place. We may think about it slightly differently. And that, you know, I see this internal talk mediated by unconscious emotional states, which are coming from the body and possibly also loops from the conscious state and the conscious contents. It's just a very complicated multi-dimensional dimensional dance. Yeah, yeah. And I don't necessarily say anybody's in control. As Damasio say, you can't take any part out of it and have it still work. If you didn't have your conscious contents, it wouldn't work, or at least would be no better than a chimp, yeah. right? Actually, it wouldn't even be as good as a chimp. So you got to have them all. Uh, let's move on now. We're well, on, let no, me, God damn, we're having a good time. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, let me just let me add something there, too, to put a little bit of meat on this bones of, you know, the, the, the rub, the, the reason that it's so terrifying to think that we're not in control, uh, even though we feel like we're in control, uh, is because you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, this, this thing that's completely unaccessible to me is, is it's happening in the moment. And I, you know, I'm kind of victim to thinking that I'm the agent in the situation. And when we have a lot of evidence to point to the fact that actually it's just kind of, you know, processes unfolding and, and the, the, the little story that's coming up with the, from the tiny element of your brain is, is just confabulating uh, things. This actually speaks to the most profound uh, experience that I had, which I guess, you know, Sam would categorize this as a, as a no self experience is where 
after being on retreat, I came back the next day and, and, uh, not while sitting, you know, this is another thing that some people think is that all of your, your spiritual unfolding has to happen while you're sitting on the cushion. Uh, but I was just kind of hanging out the next day. I'd been at at my house and mulling over some of the concepts that came up about the self on this retreat and, uh, spontaneously just dropped into this, uh, space where all of a sudden all of those mechanisms, the, the confabulator was suddenly exposed to me. You know, it was like it was like knowing I was a puppet uh, to instantly go into being able to feel the strings as they were being pulled, and that was profound. You know, and all of a sudden there is no agent; there's just processes unfolding. And you know, that was it was such a profound experience, and it happened while I was you know just walking around that it lasted for a few weeks. And it was a uh, you know, but but that was that was really when you know I had been already meditating for three or four years, but that was when my real practice started. So. Yeah, just a, a fun little kind of correlation here. I was just saying, like, yes, the confabulator is real, and it can be seen. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's you know, to my point that hmm, I'm just thinking, I'm just going to think some more about this. How does one use these methods to get inside the confabulator, deconstruct it, and hack it to make it do one's bidding? Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well. Unfortunately, the answer is you got to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, which is now the transition to the, the next big topic, which you just set up perfectly, is suffering is something these guys talk about a lot, but they talk at least as much about self, mm-hmm. right? And what is self, right? And they have somewhat different perspectives, though they all come back at some level to some degree of qualification to say life is an illusion, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we could approach this a different a bunch of different ways. I mean, one of the first things to say I think is that again, translations, uh, you know, especially a lot of this language has come from a Buddhist context, which is Eastern and Tibetan is a very different language and before that Sanskrit and and uh uh, other ancient languages, you know, kind of where the, the the source material for all this stuff, and we're translating it over to, to English. And I think there's a lot lost in that that process, and a lot of people you know spend their whole careers trying to you know do some work to to, to iron out some of these things. Um, and so, one way of thinking of the self is like you know that it's your personality. It's like who you are, the the unique expression of personality, uh, human uh, psychology that you have, and. I think that that still exists. That that still runs. That exists. The problem, though, is that our confabulator, and and this is on a moment to moment experience, as we make stories up about our psychology. You know, well, I like this, and I don't like this, and I have this strength, and I hate this thing, and I don't. I, and I love this one, and this person's an asshole. Whatever it is, we believe those stories like they're true. You know, that we're, we're not, we don't think they're confabulations, and so all of a sudden we get this. We start drawing this picture of this of of this person, this 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 Jared. Uh, you know, here's all of his preferences, and here's all the things. But what's happening as we start to see the process at that confabulation as it's arising and we become aware of it and like notice the source code of it uh we start to see that it's oh it's you know it's a confabulation it's a, a proximization and if we really understand it we, we realize that that psychology is constantly changing and if it's constantly changing then it's not a thing uh that we can can orient toward uh and the other element here is that not only do we believe this idea of some sort of static self 
uh, or ideal self, and pr- probably a lot of this comes from our kind of Judeo-Christian uh, Western perspective. And then there, there's a, a physiological correlation in the sense that there's this sensation or feeling that we have locality in our experience. Like I'm behind my eyes. Uh, you know, in some cultures, it's different. It's behind their, you know, it's their heart. Uh, they see it as the, the center of the self. Um, but for whatever reason, the confabulator says, okay, here's a solid story. Uh, you know, this is who we are. Uh, where are we located in this situation? And it puts us in a place. And so breaking it, it requires us to both look at the stories deconstruct them and understand that there's gaps and they conflict with each other and none of them are permanent. Uh, and when you do that, then there's no kind of lasting you know, aspect of, our, of, of who we are. Uh, and then often when we have these insights, uh, it can release that feeling of having a certain location in our experience. And all of a sudden we realize that everything that we're experiencing right now is confabulated. So it's in some sense not true, <laughs> right? Not ultimately true. But but if it's not true in the sense that you're separate, you know, really that's what we're talking about here is the truth of being separate from the world. Um, if it's not ultimately true, then we all of a sudden are connected with the larger world, and your experience goes from being in, in one place to you know the behind your eyes uh, to then just being whatever's happening. You know, you're you're in the matrix, like it's all equally fabricated uh, what we're seeing and the stories we're saying, and then the realness is actually found, like if there is a candidate for what's real in your experience, what's lasting, uh, it's some of this stuff that really is described well as saying spirit. It's this intangible, raw knowingness that doesn't have an appearance. It doesn't have a taste. It doesn't have a smell. It's just this weird knowingness, but it's so subtle uh, that if we get fascinated with the stories, uh, we can't, we're, we, we, we lose track of it. Um, but it's also not something that's, that's foreign because as soon as you see it, it's always like a, it's kind of like rediscovering your, like, oh, that, you know, and that's why I call it waking up. Oh, you, you wake up. You're like, oh, this was, this is a dream. This is a dream. Here's the real, the, you know, the, the only thing that's not changing my experience is just that there is an experience and there's that equality to, you know, everything, all my sensory uh, input. Uh, that is that I that's common, and that's why a lot of traditions will call this like the true self. Buddhism doesn't make this claim, uh, where they usually say no self, uh, which kind of leaves things a little bit more nebulous. Uh, and I think there's pros and cons in that that uh, uh, that approach. But yeah, I, I, that's I don't know that that's what I'm, that's coming to mind at the moment when we talk about this idea of what a self is. <laughs> well, yeah, it's good. I like it. Very evocative. You know, here's my take on it, which is that the self is basically, you know, this is this, it's an analogy, and analogies are never perfect, but it's essentially a program that runs on the brain, and sometimes it's not running, right? Uh, we, we know it's not running when we're in a coma or in deep delta wave sleep, and you know, I think more interestingly, we know it's not running when you take a mega dose of LSD, you know, say so <laughs> uh, one time did 400 micrograms, Jesus Christ, right? True ego death, right? There was no there there, right? It was just some entirely different kind of state, and as I mentioned early on, I can knock the self offline for about two to three seconds with just a certain little brain move, so I basically caused the program to suspend and swap out the disk and then come back two seconds later. So, you know, it seems to me that it, say it's not real. It's not quite what I want to say, at least. What I want to say is that it is not the only thing that can run on your brain. It's just a program that runs, and I shouldn't say just, because it's the most important program that runs on our brain, because it's the program that allows us to survive in the world. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's the piece of machinery that actually makes decisions. You know, you, you can't make decisions or take more specific. Actually, decisions are not the most important thing, actually. It's actions, right? Mm-hmm. You can make all the decisions you want. If you don't take any actions, you're still going to starve to death. And so uh, when I think about what is it that conscious cognition is actually for, it's to essentially connect perception to memory to processing and then optionally from time to time trigger an affordance on one of the conscious contents Mm. and you know that could be as simple as walk away or or approach move to the left to the right pick it up and use it as a hammer etc and to do all those things requires that the self-program be running yeah, to to a large degree, yeah, and and to to my point, it's not like you stop being a human if you are in these altered states. Uh, and in some ways, it, you almost feel more human. You know, like it, it's like this weird paradox of like you talk to people who have had heightened states, uh, whether it's you know psychedelic people or uh, extreme athletes or something like that. And, and in one breath, they'll say, "Well, that's when I feel the most like myself." Uh, and then in another breath, they'll say, "Well, there's no self there. You know, it's just act, everything's just kind of happening. I'm not. Nobody's in charge." So it is this this kind of strange paradox. Um, I, I think... Yeah, that's kind of the flow self, right? Or flow. Now, the question is, is flow a, you know, to my mind, I mean, I've been in some crazy flow states on a few occasions. I can tell you some stories, the shit I did when I was in these states. It's amazing. But I'd always felt like it was me. It was definitely not the same as 400 micrograms of LSD ego death, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a you know, a best form of self, basically, mm-hmm. would be my take on it, at least. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a strange one. It, you know, it, and at the same point, if somebody were to slap an MRI scanner on you, I mean, I'm fairly confident to say that the aspects of your mind that are largely uh, correlated with self-confabulation would be very uh, deregulated in those those spaces. Um, so, you know, it, but but really, you know, it's, it's, you know, I like to think of the the these things, all of these kind of conceptual overlays uh, as being really valuable maps. Uh, there are approximations of how to navigate our territory uh, and they're super valuable because they simplify things because the world is freaking complex, man. It's crazy, you know, right? <laughs> it's, it's for a human, it's infinite. There has to be some heuristics to create a smaller world where we actually can make decisions and not be completely overwhelmed uh, and just, you know, gawk-eyed look at the the stars all day long every day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, again, my, in my own model of conscious cognition, that's what consciousness is for. It actually turns out just to be a simple hack that chops through all the combinatoric explosion of possibilities and forces the decision every 250 milliseconds, basically. And it's not always right by any means, right? And that's, those of us who have lived a life know we make mistakes each and every day, but not making a decision every 250 milliseconds, even if it's only what to pay attention to next, you're never going to succeed. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, to, to continue this map metaphor, it'd be like the, the difference between, uh, you know, going on a hike and, you know, basically stopping where you are pulling the uh, map up to your head to, to try and figure out where you need to be going um, and holding it so close that you can no longer see what's going on uh, and then trying to walk, right? Like, so, so the trick here is to like figure out how to, to hold it at a bit of a distance and compare and contrast because the real world is far more complex than this 2D map representation that we've come up with. Um, and we're going to have to use all of our other senses, not just our sight and conceptual mind, but our feelings. And, you know, if we hit a run into a rock, we should, that should be a cue that, well, well, the rock's not on the map, but it sure is in real life. Uh, so you have to, you have to hold both of these things in cognition for there to be a good 
interaction. And, you know, a lot of the ideas of, of self uh, that we have, they continue to run, you know, the, the colloquial phrases, they continue to run. Uh, the maps are still available. It's just, you just don't believe them uh, because we get so entranced with them that we forget that we're actually on a hike. We're just staring at the map all day long. And that that doesn't get get us very far. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I like that. It's a very interesting metaphor. And it gets us to my next topic, which is, I think, very closely aligned, which is attention. Mm. You know, in my own work, I like to say that attention is the cursor of consciousness, Mm -hmm. that our consciousness is actually made from the changes in states of attention. That's the clock of our consciousness and can happen probably no more frequently than 40 milliseconds, something like that, and more often happens at about 250 milliseconds. And when I think about some of the writings I've read, uh, particularly Sinjin Young's talk about concentration as being what he he describes it as central to meditation. He says, anything that does not improve your concentration is not meditation. Mm. When I think of concentration, I think of some ability to manage attention. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on the relationship between Jung's idea of concentration and maybe the more cognitive science idea of attention. Mm. This is fun because, you know, I spent a lot of time with Shenzhen's system uh, called Unified Mindfulness and went through their, their teacher program and, and did a bunch of uh, online uh, classes. And, and so I'm very familiar with it. And I love a lot of his, the maps that he comes up with to describe uh, what we're doing here with our minds. And I actually, when I stopped doing the, the Unified Mindfulness thing, uh, it was because I discovered a, another system by a guy named Chuladasa, who has a, a map called uh, The Mind Illuminated, or came from a book called The Mind Illuminated, uh, which is actually like a very traditional, old school Buddhism approach to the practice. But one of the heuristics is for how he thinks of attention is he likes to break it up into two different qualities. So he basically says that like optimal uh, movement through our environment is the optimal interaction between attention and awareness. And I think he also, because he has a bit of a psychological and neuroscience background, I know that he's made some correlations to brain locations uh, that, that correlate with the awareness and, and attention. I couldn't speak to it with any authority at this moment, uh, but I can tell you what it feels like. And you know, while these distinctions might be arbitrary, and we could just say it's kind of like a on one end of the spectrum, we have attention, which is extremely hyper-focused, high detail, another characteristic of our attention that is if there's an intention to it, like it feels like we're putting our, it's there for a reason. We put it there. There was an agent behind it. And then we, on the other end of the spectrum, we have this really broad, low uh, uh, density, peripheral element of our experience, which would be more uh, aligned with awareness. And that one's weird because it's, you know, it doesn't feel like there's much of it. an intention in bringing that quality of, of experience. Uh, but this is also extremely important because it puts whatever is an intention in a certain context. So like a, one of the classic examples that I love is just to think of looking at uh, you know, a stack of you know, those Zen rocks uh, on, a, on a beach. And they're, you know, it's very beautiful, provocative. And if you were to see it right in front of you, you'd be staring at it and, and you know, it's in perfect clarity. And without thinking about it, you know immediately, I'm on a beach. If my attention's really stable, uh, you know, the periphery starts to expand a little bit and get a little bit more detail, a little bit more wide, a little bit wider. 
that can tell me about things that are competing for my attention. You know, somebody's jogging next to me and I catch it in my periphery. And, you know, it's, it's very, very subtle, but just enough information to decide whether I want to go bring my attention over there or not. If we're in either state in the sense where there's only awareness, where it's just this completely open, broad thing, you're not going to do anything in that situation. Or if you're in complete hyper tunnel focus, then you can be completely unaware of what's happening around the edges. Uh, you know, a classic example that everybody has is getting caught up by anger. You know, we're on the, the highway and somebody cuts us off and we flip them off. You're like, we're, the anger is all of our experience and we, we aren't seeing the, uh, the periphery, the larger, you know, like I'm on a highway, like this is dangerous, you know, all these other things to consider, you know, and you can strengthen both of these elements. And then a lot of meditation is figuring out how to get them to work together. Uh, and, you know, you can't sustain attention without being aware of what is going to be possibly distracting you so that you can deliberately make the choice to stay, keep attention with, with what you've chosen. Um, and the, the other element here is the intention. There has to be an intention to maintain focus and there has to be an intention to maintain peripheral awareness. Um, so yeah, I, that, that's my favorite like neuroscience, psychological, pop psychological de description of, of moment to moment experience, especially in a contemplative uh, per perspective or frame. I like, so you would essentially describe a tension, or actually you could adjust, presumably, these parameters between awareness and focus. Yeah, so, you know, very simply, right, you could, if, if you hold your hand up in front of your face right now, you can really d dial in on that every tiny little detail and, and you know, look the crack and, uh, and the more the more you get engrossed with that, the more your periphery starts to dampen down. So the awareness becomes a little less, but you can loosen it a little bit and just be like, oh, I'm just going to look at the whole hand, keep it in attention. But all, all of a sudden I'm very, you know, the, the, the periphery has become very, a lot more broad. I kind of understand the context of where the hand is, what it's doing. Um, so yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, we can play with both of these and you can build both of those in different ways with the, using different practices as well. Okay, interesting. Of course, in normal life, let's say a person who's not doing these kinds of things, the brain is basically driving itself through a whole series of attention changes. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I use attention in the cognitive science sense, typically uh, a large amount of focus on one single object within the uh, conscious frame. It could be a visual object, a sound object, or it could be an internal speech word, could be a reading word, and you, it basically hops about, on average, no faster than once every quarter of a second, sometimes a bit faster. And we can concentrate our attention on a single object. But this is the interesting thing. The brain does not like that. The longer <laughs> you concentrate on one object, the more it wants you to switch to something else. You know, and after about five seconds, it really gets pretty hard to keep focused on one object because of essentially the brain does not want you to do that because it has learned, it has learned, quote unquote, a little too uh, anthropomorphic there. Through evolution, it has been tuned such that changing attention, you know, no more than once every five seconds is probably good in terms of being adaptive, i.e. being able to survive to the point you have children. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think that this is, brings up a really interesting evolutionary argument in the perspective of if we're looking at you know, the, the 200,000 years of tribal life that led up to modern society, uh, you can quickly see that life would be a lot slower 
uh, and there would be a lot of deliberate tasks and not a lot of other things demanding our attention. Uh, so if I were to, to, to make a hypothesis here, I'd say that the amount of attention shifting uh, in a tribal circumstance where you're in nature, everything's kind of moving at a similar pace. There's not these clear distinctions. You're completely, you know, and whatever you need to be doing, you need needs your full attention because you're, uh, you know, got to be keeping in, uh, your safety in, in mind and safety of your family and all this stuff. Like, you know, that environment, I think, is far more conducive to a, a more natural amount of attention and awareness and, and attentional shifting. Uh, now, we fast forward to today, uh, and we just are bombarded. You know, everything's vying for our attention, you know, with our social networks, our uh, our work environment that's loud and crazy, and the, the, the TV shows, they're getting faster because people can't pay, even pay attention, so it's kind of a self-amplifying uh, mechanism here right now. And this is why I think it's that, that a practice that leads to attention stability is becoming more and more important. And you can, like I said, you can maintain attention deliberately and use attention and awareness in any circumstance you want. It just so happens that sitting on a cushion is maybe like the, the power lifting variant, you know, where it's just like, that's all you're doing. It's all, you know, it's very isolated. Um, so it's a good bang for your buck. But every moment we're, we're kind of falling into habitual patterns of how we use our attention and awareness. And to your point, we become so used to shifting our attention that it becomes very unnatural and uncomfortable, especially in the beginning, to maintain it in one place. But here's the rub too. If you spend some time doing concentrative practices, uh, and it, it, these are probably the ones that take the most time and commitment, you know, it, it probably if you're not doing an hour or two a day, you're not going to get very far. And it has to be every day because you, you'll lose progress. Uh, you're not going to get very far in the concentration realm because life's not, not very conducive to it. But the interesting thing is that once the mind starts to get settled and comfortable with being completely focused on one area, it actually is very pleasurable. And depending on how distracted we are, some people have, well, there's a bunch of types of reactions to con the concentrated mind uh, that happen to arise, but they, they go actually in a predictable order too. And it, it starts with like a very ecstatic joy. So all of a sudden your mind has decided it's staying where it is and it's not going anywhere. That will, it can release these extreme uh, bouts of, of joy. Your skin feels like it's bursting, you know, it's, it's hot, it's vibrating or something like that. And then after, if that can stabilize, if you stay concentrated, you can move into a little bit more of a tranquil uh, pleasant sensation. And if you can stay with that a little bit, things start to get a little bit more, a little more subtle. And it's just kind of equanimity. And eventually you can get to the place, you know, where you, you kind of bottom out and there's just radical equanimity where everything is a hundred percent perfect. And there's only a tiny thing in your, you know, the tiny, you know, it's, it's the sensation of, of your breath or a location in your experience. And that's all that's there and everything has been dampened out. Uh, so it's actually, they can be very pleasurable. Uh, and a lot of people who do these practices get called, so these concentration practices often leading to these things called jhanas, these deep concentrative states. Uh, and it's kind of a, a, a fun little anecdote that a lot of people will talk about how some people get so addicted to the pleasure that they call them jhana junkies, where all they're doing is sitting down and you're getting high concentrated states and, and blissing out. <laughs> so, yeah, it uh, seems dangerous to me. You know, as I, you know, as I wrote my essay, uh, I've seen this. I've seen where people get pulled away from the work of the world and essentially become navel gazers, right? And uh, it, you know, there is such positive feedback and probably strong dopamine signals to do it again, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, people who get involved with these things should realize that you know they're like heroin. You know, heroin <laughs> is you know very, very. They tell me at least I've smoked some opium a couple times, never done heroin, <laughs> but I have heard from people who have done it that it is like 
like the best thing ever, right? But <laughs> you don't want to be doing the best thing ever all the time because there's the work of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. we're in the world to do the work of the world, at least I would say. And these other things are means to that end. And we need to be careful that they don't become ends rather than means. Yeah, that when the rubber hits the road, it's about being in the world. And there is an uncomfortable reality that in some senses, sometimes sometimes people have to dedicate good portions of their life or time to pursuing these states in isolation, not interacting uh, that deeply with the world, at least, to kind of unravel their shit so that when they do engage in the world, they're not so self and other harming. You know, they're not such a, they're not a hazard. You know, the default human psychology, I'd argue, is kind of like a bull in the china shop. We're, you know, we're, we're causing a lot of damage. Um, so yeah, you have to hold both of these in, in kind of the same hand. And, and, and that's just one, you know, a pleasure, uh, getting attached to pleasure in your meditation practice. That's one of a million cul-de-sacs. There's all sorts of spiritual bypassing that people can fall trapped to. Um, so I think it's really important to talk about how in the end, this is about being in the world, affecting change, interacting with people. Uh, and, you know, and there's, uh, there's a Zen phrase that's always fun. And it says, you know, before enlightenment, you uh, carry wood and get and uh, gather water. And after enlightenment, you carry wood and gather water, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, don't, I don't mind that at all. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of the ways in which this is useful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And pleasurable. And now, and again, this is the area where I am still very resistant, and I think Sam Harris is too. I'd like to hear what your view is. Are there any metaphysical truths to be found here in these contemplative practices, or are they just are the confabulator firing shit up as we go into <laughs> non-typical uh, brain rhythms and networks? <laughs> this is interesting. I, I do think it has a role. Um it's just we can't be fundamentalists about it in the sense that to, to be non-dual is to, to realize that we are we're bodies and minds, right? They're, they're, like to your point, this isn't a Cartesian separation. They're intimately intertwined and not not separate whatsoever. Um, and so if, if that holds true, then obviously there's got to be some part of this contemplative project uh, that has some real world implications when it comes to the metaphysical and philosophical uh, uh, underpinnings of, of what's actually happening out there. Well, here's an interesting thing, right? So wisdom in, in a Buddhist context, it's, it's kind of like a, an enlightened quality in the sense like it's, you know, to, to act from wisdom is, is very renowned. And what wisdom is correlated to in the Buddhist teachings is actually uh, something called emptiness. Uh, so it's you know, no, no thingness, nothingness. And so I think that the, the value here, and this, this makes some connections to the postmodern shift as well, is understanding in our experience, if we can get so intimately familiar with our confabulator that is making stories up and some of them are more or less true and, and, and resonant with the, the larger world, the more we start to see that if they're all maps, none of the things that our mind can offer up are going to be ultimately true. They're all simplifications of what's actually happening. And that can be a terrifying perspective from an objective stance because you're basically saying that all of our theories are can't ultimately be proven, uh, you know. And and for a large degree, you know, f- you know, physics and and science progresses under the the auspices or the the intention that maybe we can actually find out what the the source code of the of the world is. We can boil it down. We can really understand it. But when we realize that it's something that our mind is creating, 
it allows us to view it in a different way. Um, and the cool thing about this here is that we can be flexible with our metaphysics in the sense that we can see that each of them can have a valuable perspective or lens to apply in different situations. And we're not really that worried about them disagreeing with each other. Uh, they become far more about how their utility uh, and far less about their truth. Uh, well, not far less about their truth, but understanding that there's there's no ultimate answer that our mind, our tiny little brains can somehow grasp the totality of the universe using our weird arbitrary distinctions, even though they, they're extremely helpful. And you know the reason I brought up postmodernism because postmodernism is kind of very intellectual version of this deconstruction. Uh, it's doing these really deep dives to try and understand the limitations of our stories. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe we could start there. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good place to start. You know, first I would push back a little bit and say that you know real scientists don't think that they're anywhere close to real ground truth, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, especially the top scientists. You know, they know that 100%. that what everything we do is coarse grained, simple and certainly wrong in the details and perhaps wrong in the big picture, right? It hasn't been that long ago since, for instance, Einstein overturned Newtonism, right? Newtonian view of the world was so amazingly ingrained. You go back and read your Kant, right? You can't imagine Kant without Newton right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yet Einstein could turn that completely on its head. And then the even more radical craziness of quantum mechanics, right? So yeah, yeah. as Richard Feynman says, if anyone says they understand quantum mechanics, they're lying, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Nobody <laughs> understands quantum mechanics and that's okay. And, you know, and I would say the top scientists, you know, accept that. On the other hand, and I think this is part ways with the new agers and I'm not sure with the Buddhists, you know, I'm not sure, which is, I would say there is a reality out there and that science is incrementally and iteratively and sometimes wrongly learning more and more and more and more about that real universe that's out there. And that, you know, we can't just make shit up about the universe, you know, and that's the difference between science and metaphysics. Metaphysics is the art of making shit up, right? <laughs> and uh, in fact, I, when I say metaphysics, when I hear, say, hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. <laughs> that's about the kind of metaphysics, what I call meta metaphysical assertions, where people just assert things, right? Oh, that Yahweh is sitting in a cloud, or Zeus is throwing lightning bolts, or Thor causes thunder. That's just shit somebody made up. And even Aristotelian physics, was frankly something somebody made up, Aristotle in this case, and it was just bullshit. He just made it up and it was easily disproved. Weirdly, it took 2000 years for somebody to do a half an hour experiment to disprove it uh, because we clearly have a bias towards these metaphysical assertions. And so I like to carefully piece apart that we have some things that we're learning about the universe that while not exactly true are getting truer and they are consistent and they're lawful. That's the important thing. Mm -hmm. At least they have been so far. It'd be really interesting to prove they aren't lawful, which would be interesting. But so far we we found them to be extremely lawful. You know, the the laws of quantum mechanics seem to be correct to a 14 decimal points, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And while the area of metaphysics, you know, people just make shit up all the time. You know, the anthropologists have found at least 10,000 religions, for instance, all of which at the level of metaphysics contradict each other. Hmm. Interesting. Right. And so I, you know, when I run to someone with a religious dogma, I say at best, the probability of being correct is one in 10,000. <laughs> 
and they go, oh, you know, they just, they can't get that, right? I mean, the, the people watching the Aztec priests cut the hearts out of teenagers, hold the hearts up, the beating hearts up, and then throwing the carcasses down the stairs so the lower priests could eat them. They all thought that was great. That was the good shit and the true and, and, uh, and straight and narrow way to reality, right? Yeah, yeah. So we can believe all kinds of horse shit, right? And so that's why I think it's hugely important to draw this bright line between metaphysical speculations, which are unbound, and science-like, and some of its friends, math and logic, though they are different because those are both formal systems rather than empirical systems, right? And don't get too confused. And I'm going to give you two examples. Just love to get your reaction to. One, I won't point at the, the serious meditative contemplative practice people, but the new age versions of some mm-hmm. come back amazingly often with what they call a they merged with the universal consciousness Mm -hmm. right and i go where's the evidence for this universal consciousness (laughs) you know what has it told you that you wouldn't know otherwise right and so far i've never never seen a single proof that there is a universal consciousness but millions of people will claim that there are the other one is from the fairly rigorous, not as rigorous as we'd like, DMT, drug studies, right? Where amazingly often people come back with these similar stories of little green men and, you know, strange doings in some other dimension. And again, all right, sounds like horseshit to me. And yet these are the kinds of things that we see coming repeatedly out of, you know, these kinds of atypical mental experiences. Mm -hmm. Let me make a, a quick caveat too, because you mentioned uh, you know, that I can give the Buddhist perspective here. If there are any Buddhists uh, listening, there's a good chance that I'm saying some things that are very wrong or, or uh, heretical, and there's a million variants of Buddhism. So I, I'm definitely not a, a spokesman, and I actually would call myself just kind of Buddhist. You know, I, I've learned a lot about it, but but never taken vows or been part of a, a formal sangha or anything like that. So a, a bit of a visitor to the space, but but yeah, I do I do enjoy its philosophy a lot. That being said, I think we're pointing to the same thing that we talked about in the beginning, right? Is that subjective experience and objective experience uh, are two lenses to view our world. And while they are connected, they're not completely separate, you know, they, they, they influence each other on a regular basis. If we get too over-invested in one of them, uh, it excludes the other. Uh, so, you know, what I'm basically saying is that we should be non-dual in our subject-object distinctions. And if you don't know enough about science and rational understanding, uh, then you'll make the mistake of thinking that the experiences that you're having are ultimately true. But I also think that the the fascinating thing here is that when you view these from a, a highly developed rational understanding, you get a bit of a metaphysics, and that metaphysics is uncertainty, right? So the reason I said wisdom was empty is because in the in this distinction, wisdom is knowing that we know nothing, uh, and when we do that, it frees us up to explore anywhere. And to your point, it frees us up to constantly be refining, adjusting, updating, comparing our maps. Uh, so we become, you know, the, the intellectual pursuit or to trying to understand our experience in some profound way is, is in one sense, just a, a grandiose form of cartography. You know, we're really interested in trying to figure out, you know, approximations that are useful to us in everyday life. Um, but the moment that we become fundamentalists and think that one of these areas is true and the other isn't, uh, we limit ourselves to a large element of, of our experience. And the weird thing, too, is that if we can look at these subjective, 
frames that might sound like they're making metaphysical claims as purely ways of describing subjective states uh, and not being predictive completely of, of objective ones, uh, it becomes more useful. But I think emptiness or no-thingness in the sense that if everything is moving and everything is connected and interacting with each other, any distinction that we make is going to be inherently false. It will be it'll be wrong the moment we draw it because things are always changing. And and you know, maybe we could talk about the the scientific implications of this. Are we saying that some of the fundamental laws of physics might be in flux? I, I don't know, but I would say I've never had an experience that wasn't impermanent. Uh, so it would, would follow suit that maybe we could use that as a lens for a certain exploration of of objective science. And maybe we could learn something there. So yeah, it's it's this strange polarity of being able to hold both of them in hand and navigate fluidly between the two, depending on when it's most useful. And useful is key. I mean, it's my favorite word. I know you've mm-hmm. probably heard me say it a zillion times as you've edited the podcast, right? And is it actually useful? And whether the concept of being at one with the universal consciousness or uh, having a conversation with little green men on a uh, blue crystal world is actually useful, I'm not so sure. But I do know that understanding quantum mechanics is how we build the disk drives that we have. And, you know, we use general relativity and the design of GPS systems and how we send satellites on long orbits, et cetera. So I know those things are useful. So I would suggest that, you know, use usefulness as a lens in general. And I also came just while while we were talking, listening to you talk, it came up with a little bit of a interesting take on some of these metaphysical assertions is maybe we should think of our metaphysical assertions as the most recent book review on the most recent book written by the confabulator. Yes. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should wrap it up right there. This was a great conversation. I have another page of notes, but I think we did a great job. Thank you very much, Jared. Yeah, thank you. This was uh, this was a blast. I'm, I'm glad we could make some time to to dig deep into these uh, these contemplative waters. <laughs> yep. I don't know if we just uh, confused the hell out of each other, or uh, <laughs> actually, as usual, I think I made a little progress here. Every time I talk to somebody about this, I feel like I I understand it a little bit better. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jane's Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com.